John chapter 1, verse 29, that's the text for this morning. We're going to read a little bit of the context surrounding that here in just a moment. The title of the message this morning is Jesus, the Sin-Bearing Lamb. Just let that settle in your heart and your mind for a moment. Jesus, the Sin-Bearing Lamb. Over the last few weeks, we have looked at many of the wonderful, beautiful indescribable names that were attributed to our Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. What names? What names ascribed and attributed to the Lord Jesus Christ? Last week, We looked at that name in Matthew chapter 1, Emmanuel, a transliteration from the Hebrew, Imanu, with us, El, God. With us, God. He's come to be with us. He took on our flesh, Emmanuel, God, with us. But there was a second name that appeared in our text last week, Matthew chapter 1, and that was the given name to the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the name Jesus. Why? Why the name Jesus? Well, the angel of the Lord has told us, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And he shall be called. What wonderful, glorious, indescribable names. Let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. Let me encourage you to stand if you have the ability. We're going to read John chapter 1 verses 29 through 34. This is John writing this account under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and these are the words that he pens. The next day, he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this indeed is the Son of the living God. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. You may or may not have ever considered this truth. This particular reality may have never flooded through your mind. But consider with me for a moment. Christmas exists because sin exists. Christmas exists 
Because sin exists. You see, Christmas didn't start in a stable. Christmas didn't start in a manger. Christmas did not begin in an inn. Christmas, friends, began in a garden. Christmas began in a garden. And so before we go to the manger, before we look there, we must go to the garden and look there. Because that is precisely where Christmas began. You see, it is the reality of sin that makes a swaddled Savior so sweet. Let me rewind that phrase for you. It is the reality of sin that makes the swaddled Savior so sweet. Christmas exists because sin exists. Apart from sin, there wouldn't wouldn't be a need for Christmas. There would be no need for the Word to become flesh, for God already dwelled with His people in sinless perfection, with unhindered fellowship back in the garden. Friends, I want to share with you this morning a few lies that we have bought into hook, line, and sinker concerning sin, that if we understand they are lies will shine a ray of beaming light, new, fresh light upon the Christmas story. Lie number one, sin isn't really that big of a deal. Sin isn't really that big of a deal. And even for us Christians, even for us believers, even for us brothers and sisters of whom the Holy Spirit indwells, we have bought into the lie at times that sin is not really that big of a deal. It's not really cosmic treason. It's just a kink in the chain of life. It's a hiccup, if you will. In the first few pages of the Bible, just shortly after God had spoken all creation into existence, He, God, from the dust of the ground, fashions a man, Adam. And He breathed life into him. And it didn't take very long before it became very apparent that Adam needed a helper. And so God created the woman out of his side, out of a rib from his side. He fashioned Eve for Adam. God put them in the middle of the most beautiful garden on the face of the planet. Adam and Eve were both created perfect. They were able to reflect God's image back to him. Friends, that is our purpose The reason that God created us is so that we would be able to reflect his image back to us. He's given us all the hardware, all the equipment, if you will, to reflect his glory back to him. God's design and his intention is that he would shine his glory upon man, and then man would turn around and just reflect that image back to him and say, Oh God, how sweet you are. Oh God, how marvelous you are. Oh God, how beautiful you are. That was God's intention in creation. That's God's purpose for each and every one of you. You need a reason to wake up every morning? There's your reason. That you would have the unspeakable joy and the immeasurable pleasure of reflecting back to God who He is. His glory, His nature, and His attributes. That you would enjoy sweet fellowship, sweet communion with him as he shines his glory and you reflect it back to him. You see, Adam and Eve were created differently 
than all the rest of creation in the fact that they were given, created, designed with mirrored souls, able to commune with God. Nothing else in creation is able to commune with God. There are other things in creation. As a matter of fact, all creation is is said to bear the fingerprint, so to speak, of its maker. But Adam and Eve created distinctly different in the fact that they were able to reflect. They were were created with mirrored souls. God tells us that in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us us make man, let us create man in our own image, in our own likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them both male and female. And again, his intention was that by revealing himself to Adam and Eve, they would reflect back to him. They would enjoy him. They would love him. They would enjoy being loved by him. That Adam and Eve would say, wow, you're beautiful. We love you. We enjoy you. We want more of you. That Adam and Eve would enjoy a relationship with their creator God that is beyond their and our wildest imagination. I mean, think about it for a moment. They knew God. They talked with him. They walked with him. They saw him. He was there with them in the garden. In their very makeup, God created Adam and Eve with everything they needed to have a right relationship with him. But God also gave Adam and Eve an ability to reflect or to refuse to reflect his image and his glory. And there's a whole lot of theology that probably needs to be ironed out in that statement right there. That's for another message. Okay? Just for the sake of where we are this morning, Adam and Eve created perfect in, in the most beautiful garden that has ever been created on the face of the planet with mirrored souls able to reflect back to God his image had in some capacity a will and a choice to decide whether or not they were going to obey God's precepts, whether they were going to obey God's law, whether they were going to obey God's commands to reflect the image of God or to not reflect the image of God. As God placed Adam and Eve in the midst of that garden, he gave them one rule to govern them. You ever wondered, my friends, why God would give a law or a precept or a command to perfect people? Why, why is there any need for a law? Why is there any need for a precept? Why is there any need for a command if sin does not yet exist? Well, I would submit to you that the reason that God gave Adam and Eve a command, a precept, a law that is to be obeyed and to be followed is because it demonstrates something of our subordination to our Creator. He is God, we are not. He is King, we are subject. He is master, we are servant. He is creator, we are creation. And so God institutes upon perfect people, before sin entered into the world, a law, a precept, a rule that would govern them. So that it would be very clear that God is the holy lawgiver and that we, in submission to him, are to be law-abiding creatures. We learn this in Genesis chapter 2. Verses 15 through 17, And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, then you will surely die. 
It wasn't very long after that before some other information came along that said, Adam and Eve, God's God's really withholding from you. God really hasn't given you his best. There's something that he's keeping from you. And Adam and Eve had a choice in that moment. Whether they were going to believe the promises of God, the goodness of God's character, nature, and attributes revealed to them in the garden, or if they would take it upon themselves to believe the lie, to disobey God, and to go their own way. Remember, Satan questioned Adam and Eve, did God really say you must not eat from the tree? Did God really say that you must not? So subtle was the lie there. God had given Adam and Eve freedom to eat of every tree in the garden save one. So subtle was the serpent's lie. Did God really say that you can't eat from the tree? And there, then and there, Adam and Eve were faced with an incredible dilemma. You know what that dilemma was, friends? Is sin really that big of a deal? Is sin really that big of a deal? I mean, it's, it's just a piece of fruit, right? It, it can't hurt that much. And so Eve, curious to know about this desirable experience that she was missing out on, chose to disobey God, and her husband Adam followed right after. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Then the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and it was pleasing to the eye, and it was also desirable for gaining wisdom. And she took it and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Friends, created by God, with all the hardware necessary to reflect back to him his image, and then a little lie comes along. Did God really say that you can't? And in that moment was the greatest dilemma that has ever been faced, to obey God or to disobey God. Moses records for us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, that Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, thinking that they knew better chose to disobey God. And in that moment, sin and death entered into the world. You see, Christmas did not begin in a stable, friends. Christmas did not begin in a manger. Christmas did not begin in an inn. Christmas began in a garden. When sin and death right on its heels entered into the world. Is sin really that big of a deal? Yeah. Sin really is a big deal. Because sin distorts our ability to rightly reflect back the nature of God to him. In other words, the very purpose for which we had been created had been shattered, had been clear-cut to the ground. In that moment that Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, a cataclysmic event took place that shattered 
that shattered to the core the relationship that existed between God and his creation. You see, the, the sin of pride and meism came flooding into the lives of all humanity. The sting of sin entered into the world. And friends, that's the state right there that all humanity is in apart from Jesus who will save his people from their sins. That right there is the picture of the lives of all humanity apart from Emmanuel, God with us. John chapter 1, the word became flesh. He took on our, our frail flesh and lived among us so that we might see rightly his glory, the glory from the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. You see, what was once perfect is now broken. What was once clear has been shattered by sin. You see, the penalty of sin is intense, friends. It clear cuts the relationship between God and man to the ground. The problem of sin is massive. I mean, I mean now what? I mean, if, if someone were brilliant enough to be able to come and to find every shard of glass and to put it back, you still have an image that is, unable to, that is unable to rightly reflect back the glory of its maker. But that's what we do so often, right? I mean, we all know God's given us a conscience, Romans chapter 2, that bears witness to our sin. The fact that guilt exists, the fact that shame exists, friends, is a huge, red, flashing warning light that something is wrong, something is massively wrong, and we all know that. Because every single one of us, without exception, experiences guilt and shame. And so often what we do is we can, we can see the shattered picture, but we approach it in the complete wrong way. I mean, we come to the broken shards on the ground, and we begin to pick them up, and we say things like this, well, maybe... Maybe I can stop with the pornography. Maybe, maybe I'll try to change my language. Maybe, maybe next year I'll work on getting my life straight again. But even if someone could come and put all the pieces together, you'd still have a picture, you'd still have a mirror that was unable to rightly reflect the glory of its maker. Friends, sin is a really, really big deal. And until we understand something of the heinous nature of sin, that swaddling Savior in a manger won't be very sweet. We'll get all excited about tinsel and toys, lights and trees, but we'll miss it. We'll miss it. The second lie is this. And it comes from the first. I'm pretty good. I'm not that bad. We bought into the lie, hook, line, and sinker, that sin isn't that really big of a deal. And to the degree that we buy into that lie, we'll buy into the second lie that comes right on its heels, and that's that I'm pretty good. I'm not that bad. You see, we begin to create our own moral standards, and we begin to judge ourselves by our own standard. To the degree that we buy into our own moral standard and we begin to judge ourselves by it, we will buy into the lie that we are pretty good, not that bad. 
I mean, we'll begin to look at other people and say, well, I don't do what he does, or I don't do what she does, or we'll watch the, the evening news and we'll say, well, I, I'm not out there doing that. I must be pretty good in comparison. Yeah. Do you know what Paul said? Paul said those who judge themselves by themselves are unwise. It's the wrong standard. It's the wrong standard. I'll never forget as a young man going and shopping for engagement rings for my bride. And standing there, not knowing the first thing about a diamond, a jeweler lays out upon a glass table, lights a beaming in the jewelry store. He lays these diamonds out, and he says, you know, this is this, and this is that. And I I look at him, and I say, they're all great to me. The only thing I'm concerned with is, what's the cost? And that's when I began to get an education in diamonds, in gemology, if you will. And that jeweler did something that I'll never forget. He took some of those same diamonds that he had laid out upon the glass table, which under the jewelry lights looked so beautiful, so flawless, so perfect, and he put some of those diamonds right over a little black piece of felt. And you know what happened? A lot of those diamonds that looked so beautiful now looked so yellow. Why? Did the diamonds change? No. They didn't. What changed? The backdrop. That which I was judging them on the basis of changed. You see, friends, we're the same way. When we view our lives against the backdrop of the moral morass of the world in which we live, we look pretty good. I mean, heck, we're not doing a lot of the things that we see taking place. We're not engaged and involved in going to, watching, talking like a lot of the things that we see in the world. But when we transpose our lives from the backdrop of this world and we see it against the backdrop of God's holiness, everything changes. Everything changes. I mean, that's what Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, did he not? He said, woe is me. Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm decimated. I'm broken. I'm distorted. I'm flawed. And my eyes have seen the king. You see, when we see God for who he really is, it resizes us, number one, and it reshapes our understanding of our own morality, of our own sin. Friends, we'll let ourselves off the hook all day long if we judge ourselves by ourselves. If that's our standard of morality, we'll let ourselves go all day long. But that's the reason that God did not make you and I the keeper of the moral standard. He's the keeper of the moral standard. You want to know what God says about our lives? Let me just read you a passage from Romans 1 here. This is you and this is me. Okay? This isn't the person out there. This isn't the person we see on the news. This is not someone that's bombing their country, some, some dictator, uh, king, lesser king, or ruler. This is you and this is me, friends. Paul writes this, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 28. Furthermore, Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not be done. Here comes a list, friends. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness and envy and greed and depravity. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very same things, but they approve of those who practice them. 
That's a biblical way of saying birds of a feather flock together. Sinners love the company of other sinners. And what do they do? Sinners do what sinners do. They sin. Because by nature, we're sinful. By nature, we're sinful. And God says, hey, there's there's major problems here. There's massive, massive problems here. And do you know what we do so often? We look back at God with this shattered soul and we say, don't worry about it, God. I got it all under control. I can handle this. We buy into the, the erroneous lie that sin can be managed. Sin can never be managed. Sin must always be put to death. Always, always, always. Brothers and sisters with a new heart converted, listen to me, give me your ears. Even in your process of sanctification, sin, sin can never be managed. It must always be put to death. You see, the problem is, is that we're so sinful, we don't even recognize how sinful we truly are. We're so sinful that it's hard to see sin because sin becomes so normal. We see so much of it that we're desensitized to it. It looks so normal in our lives. I want to put something on the screen here in just a second. It's a short sentence. Maybe you've seen one of these exercises before. But I want you to read the short sentence. And in the time it takes you to read the short sentence, I want you to count the number of Fs you see. Ready? Go. Stop. Take it away. How many of you saw three Fs? Put your hands down. How many of you saw four? How many of you saw five? Good. Hands down. How many of you saw six? The vast, vast majority of us did not see every F in that sentence. We read right over them. They're there, they were clear, they were printed in text, but we read right over them. Put that sentence back up. The three that you probably missed are the three ofs. Results of, years of, experience of. You probably read right over those three. You see, we are so sinful. Sin has infiltrated every faculty of our lives such that we don't even see our sin clearly. Like a fish does not know it's swimming in water because it's surrounded by water. Sin has worked its way into every faculty of our lives so subtly that it's often overlooked. But God doesn't overlook our sin. Track with me here, friends. God does not, God cannot overlook our sin. He sees it all, the thoughts, the actions, the words, the motives. Everything that is not visible to any other human eye is under the magnifying eye of our creator God. The writer of Hebrews tells us this, Hebrews 4.13. We all must give account. We're all laid naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He sees it all. 
He sees it all. There is not the faintest particle of any singular sin committed by any singular person that will go unnoticed by our creator God. He sees it all. He knows it all. The the sheets are pulled back on our lives. And we're exposed for what we really are before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There's no hiding with God. Not only is there no hiding with God, but something has to be done about that. Something has to be done about our sin problem. Something has to be done about the shattering effects of sin in the human heart and in the human soul. You see, friends, sin is a bigger deal than you and I can ever fathom. That's the answer to the first lie. Is sin really that big of a deal? Sin is a bigger deal than you and I have the ability to fathom. The answer to the second lie is you and I are more sinful than we can ever dare imagine. In the instant that disobedience occurred, not only was the ability to reflect God's image shattered and distorted, but death entered into the world. Paul tells us that, Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death. A wage is, is what you earn. What Romans 3.23 says is what what you've earned for your life is death. The wages of sin is death. You see, Adam and Eve's sin was not confined to Adam and Eve. If you read on in Romans chapter 5, what you find is through the sin of one man, the many became sinful, sinners. Adam's nature was transferred to all of Adam's children. Eve's nature was transferred to all of Eve's children. We were born in sin. The psalmist picks up on that. David picks up on that in Psalm 51. He says, surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We were born in sin. Born already condemned. Born with a sinful nature. Before a person can have new life, Before a person can be born again, before the shattering effects of sin can be made right in a person's heart, in a person's soul, someone, someone has to pay for that penalty. Someone has to pay for that death. You see, because unlike God, or unlike us, we oftentimes threaten our children, if you do that again, then I will, and they do it. They know they can get away with it. They know where the line is, and they can push it, push it, push it back. And we say, if you do that again, then I'm going to. And our kiddos do it. And we say, if you do it again, then I'm going to. And they do it. And we say, this is the last time I'm telling you. And we may punish, but oftentimes we don't require first-time obedience. Friends, God always requires first-time obedience. Always. Without exception. And so the reality is, if we're ever going to be born again, if the shattering effects of sin are ever going to be made right, then someone has to die my death because God wasn't kidding when he said in the garden, as surely as you eat of it, you'll die. That wasn't a bluff. If you call God's bluff, friends, you'll pay dearly. Don't think that God's going to hold everyone else accountable, but in your case, he's going to flex the standard. There could scarcely be a more heinous lie from the pit of hell than surely God will deal differently with me. He won't. He can't. 
to uphold his very nature, to uphold his very character, God cannot flex his justice. When God said, as surely as you eat of it, you will die, that's exactly what he meant, and that is exactly what he'll do. Unless, unless someone steps in and pays our debt for us. God can't just brush our sin under the rug. God can't forget as though it never happened. That would make God a liar, his word untrustworthy, and his justice system defiled. Someone must bear the weight of the shattering effects of sin in our hearts. And that, friends, that is where we step into the end. That is where we step into the manger. Because that is where Jesus took on flesh and where the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, turned and looked at his Father and said, shatter me. Shatter me fully. Shatter me completely under the weight of your wrath so that many, many men might become sons of God. The Son of God became a man to die so that many men might become sons of God. Jesus said, I will pay their penalty. I will pay their death so you, God, can offer new life to them. It's a penalty that you and I can't even fathom paying, friends, to be subject to the unmitigated wrath of a thrice holy God. Whatever's coming to mind as you even think about that statement is woefully inadequate. So much so, the Son of God sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before his crucifixion. It's not because he was afraid of men. It's not because he feared the nails. It's not because he feared the pain. It's because he knew hanging there on that old rugged cross that he would bear the full fury of God's wrath and that he would be separated from the intimate fellowship that he enjoyed with his Father so that many men And many women who come to him in simple faith and obedience might be given new life and might experience that same fellowship and the forgiveness of sin. You see, the reason that Jesus came, friends, Jesus didn't come to... Put the pieces back together. Jesus didn't come to try to reconstruct what had been broken. I mean, Jesus isn't standing this morning at the life of men and women trying to figure out how he's going to make it all work so that everything fits back together again. That's, That's not what Jesus is doing. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came not to fix our mirror, friends, He came to give you a new mirror, right? Ezekiel 36, 26. I'll remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in them and I'll cause them or I'll move them to walk in my ways and to follow my statutes. You see, what was broken and shattered 
in the garden because of a disobedience to follow God's statutes, statutes and laws and commands and precepts, isn't just fixed. Jesus came to die to replace it, to remove your broken heart, to remove that shattered soul, and to put a new one in its place. Do you know that, Jesus? Or are you all too busy trying to pick up the pieces of your own shattered life and make it look pretty again? That's the difference between religion and the saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Religion tells you to walk to the picture and try to put it all back together again. Religion would have you buy into the lie that you're not really that bad and this can really be fixed or mended or repaired. Jesus comes and he says it must be replaced. And if you have any question about that, just look at the cross. Just look at the cross. You see, Jesus came to give us a new mirror. Not to fix the mess, but to replace it. The question is, do we know that Savior? How how do you get the gift of new life? How do you get the gift of a new heart? How do you get the gift of forgiveness of sin? Jesus came preaching a very simple message. He said the kingdom of God is at hand, or close, or near. Two things, repent and believe. Those are the two requirements to enter into the kingdom of God. Those are the two requirements to have our sinful, shattered debt erased and replaced with Jesus' perfect, righteous record and merit. Repentance and faith. And they're Though they're not two separate things, they are inseparably related. Kind of like the heads and tails of a penny, so to speak. Because you can't have one without the other. Repentance just means that you would turn your back on your sin. And that subsequently you would turn your eyes upon Jesus. And that takes faith. God has to give us the faith. He must grant us the gift of faith so that we can repent and turn to him. Trusting wholly in him. Not not one piece of glass, broken glass in our hand and the other hand in his hand. Trying to figure out how we're going to work the two to save us. No, it means dropping the glass and walking away from the shattered mirror and saying, there's nothing I can do about it. I can't fix it. I can't manage it. I can't put all the pieces back together again. And so I'm trusting you. I'm trusting your righteous life lived here upon this earth. I'm trusting in your substitutionary death on Calvary's cross. I'm trusting in your victorious resurrection from the dead. Not to fix my problem, but to give me new life. Friends, is that the gospel you believe? If not, hear me clearly, hear me sensitively, but hear me boldly. You believe a false gospel and you're not saved. There's great news. There's unspeakable news. There's joyous news. There's news that would, that would merit a new star being in the sky. There's news that would merit the harking of angels. And that news is that Jesus died for sinners, just like you and just like me. Faith and repentance, my friends, those are the two things that are required. God cannot sweep our sin under the rug He cannot turn a blind eye to it. He cannot act as if it doesn't exist. His justice demands that all sin everywhere be paid for. And that's where Jesus says, I 
will pay their debt. Shatter, shatter me, shatter me fully, and shatter me completely. You know, this is the time of year when we think about exchanging gifts. And we don't just exchange gifts because that's the cultural thing to do. At least that's not where that came from. Our exchanging gifts is representative of another gift exchange that has taken place, the greatest gift exchange that has ever taken place. I want you to think about that as you're sitting around your Christmas tree tomorrow morning. But there's a greater gift that every one of those packages under the tree points to. Probably one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's a simple sentence. It's the gospel in one sentence. It says this, And God, the holy and just one, who cannot sweep my sin under the rug, whose justice demands that sin be paid for, that God, and God, made him, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. That's the greatest exchange that has ever taken place. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for me so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. The innocent paid for the guilty's debt. That's the glorious message of the gospel. That's the best gift exchange that has ever taken place. My friends, have you received the gift? You see, that changes the perspective with which we view the manger. That changes the perspective with which we view the inn or the stable. Christmas did not start there, friends. Christmas started in a garden. And what happened in that garden pointed down the corridors of history 2,000 years. When Jesus, God, took on flesh and became a man that he might die. For many men. Friends, sin will take you farther than you're willing to go. It'll cost you more than you're willing to pay. It'll keep you longer than you're willing to stay. Sin. Sin is insidious. Man of sorrows, Lamb of God, by his own betray, the sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. That is the gospel message, friends. Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins.